Okay, so this morning we're going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians. We often look to heroes for our examples of how we should live and what we should do. But our heroes often let us down eventually. You might think that there are a lot of good examples of people to follow in the Bible, but there are very few without major character flaws, without major failures. We need to recognize that in giving us the Bible, God has given us the gift of seeing broken, sinful people just like us. And if you came here this morning thinking that you're perfect, unfortunately, according to God's standards, none of us are. The only one that was perfect was his son, Jesus Christ. But in the Bible, we see people who fail God. We see people who know what they're supposed to do, receive blessings from God, but then turn away. And don't we all do the same things? Those of us that have been in church since we were little, or those of you who have come more recently, know all of the good things that come to us are from God. And even with all of those blessings, we somehow manage to sin and go down paths of danger and sometimes destruction. So our passage this morning is going to show us some examples from Scripture, and they're all bad examples. They're all things that we can look at and say, there's a warning. There are concerns here that we don't follow people and do these same types of things. They were people in situations where they could have trusted God, where they could have looked to Him, but instead they chose anything and anyone other than God. And those are idols, things that take the place of God. God created us to know Him, to be known by Him, to worship Him, and that's finding joy and satisfaction in Him. And so God warns us over and over again in His Word to avoid idols. We're continuing the series in 1 Corinthians, and it's called Living in Light of Eternity. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a city called Corinth, and the people who lived there were called Corinthians. And they were people just like us, even though they lived 2,000 years ago. They had struggles personally. They had struggles within their church. They had people that they had a hard time getting along with. And not only as a church, but as a culture, they were struggling with things like sexual immorality. They were struggling with issues in marriage and singleness. Within the church, they were struggling about how should they use their gifts and who should use which gifts. And the Apostle Paul addresses a list of questions that they sent him and said, we're, we're having a hard time, Paul. Can you, can you help us out? Paul had founded this church many years before, and he's answering their questions and telling them how to deal with these problems. And he's also giving them some additional teachings and some additional doctrines. As he shares the solutions, he says, all of these things that you do must be bound up in love, love for each other. As we exercise our Christian liberty, as we say there are things that I can do, we have to look at the people around us and say, is it loving for me to do these things, even though it's okay for me personally. Am I going to hurt someone else? The city of Corinth was in a crossroads in the Roman Empire. It was a trading route. And so not only did it have immorality, it had great religious diversity. 
And there was political corruption. A lot of the things that we see in our own culture today, people say things are getting better. Some people say things are getting worse. But we just see some of the same things repeating over and over again. As we read this letter to a different church, to a different group of believers, God inspired Paul to write it so that it would also apply to us. So we're going to look for principles. We're going to look for things that we can see that affect us right here in Dunkirk, in New York, in the United States, in 2023 and forward. So before we read our passage this morning, uh, you can turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this week of thanksgiving that we could lift up the name of Jesus Christ, that we could recognize all of the blessings in our lives that come from you. I thank you for those of us who were able to gather around a table with family and friends. Thank you for providing And Lord, we continue to pray for those that are traveling in our church family as they're headed home, possibly into some winter weather. We just ask that you would watch over them and bring them home safely. And for those that are uh, ill among us, those that are sick, we just pray that you would be close to them, that if it's your will, you would heal them and give them the strength to see it through. But if you would have them be sick a little longer, we just pray that they would know your presence, that they would find peace in you. And Lord, as we read your word this morning, as we look to instruction from you about escaping from idols, we just pray, Lord, that we would have open ears and open eyes, spiritually that we could see and understand the things that you've written for us, and that we would be not only hearers of the word this morning, but that we would be doers, that we would go away changed as we see ourselves in your word and see the things that need to change in our lives. We ask your spirit to make those changes and for us to be willing. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So the first 11, no. Is it? Yeah, that's last week's passage. If you type in the, um, maybe Robert can help out. You can type over the passage and change it to this week's. Robert or Elena. But if not, grab your Bible. This is a good way to practice using your Bible, too. After Acts and Romans in the New Testament, you'll find 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we have some bad examples. 
First of all, Paul is describing their fathers who were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. He's talking about the children of Israel, God's chosen people. And what word do we see repeated through verses 1 to 4? What do you see over and over again? Look at your Bible. This is why you bring it, or you can grab the one in front of you. Our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate the same, all drank the same, all, 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 all. What is Paul trying to do for us as he repeats the same word over and over again? It's all of us. He's making the point that they were united in this. This is something that happened to all of them. All of these good things that God was doing happened to all of them. God was with them in the physical form of a cloud during the daytime. And where are my CCA chapel students? I see a couple of you. What did God do at night? A pillar of fire. Good. Pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea as God held back the waters and they escaped the Egyptians. And then God provided something for them to eat. What is it? CCA students, Gustafson's in the back. What did God give them to eat? What is it? What is it? Manna. Manna means what is it? We have fun reminding ourselves of that each week in chapel. God provided manna, which was bread from heaven, a blessing directly from God. They all drank from water that God provided directly out of rocks. That happened two times. And then Paul connects the dots for us. He says, Christ, the Messiah, was the rock who sustained them. Was Jesus there in the Old Testament with the Israelites? Did Jesus exist before he was born in the manger? He did. The Son, the Messiah, God in three parts. He was there with them. And he said he was there giving them living water. Christ, the rock, the cornerstone, as he called himself. In John 7, 37, Jesus said, on the day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then in verse 5, it says, nevertheless, in spite of all of these blessings, in spite of all of these things that happened to all of them, they were fed, they were given water, they were protected, God was with them in a physical form. In spite of all these things, God was not pleased with most of them. Only two people who left Egypt were able to enter the promised land. Out of the million plus people, only two survived to enter into the promised land. And they were Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that believed God and trusted God as they went in to spy out the land. And God said, you will see the promised land. Even Moses, their leader, fell. And he took credit for water coming out of the rock as he struck it instead of speaking to it and say, God's going to provide for you. He said, well, here I go again. I have to hit the rock. 
And God said, for that, you will not enter the promised land. Verse 6 tells us that all of these things happened as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Instead of being satisfied with God, instead of being satisfied with all that God provided for them, they wanted something else, something other than God, and that is an idol. Usually we think of an idol as a little golden figure or maybe a big wooden statue, but Pastor Brad Bigney, who we heard from a year ago, defines an idol as this on screen. Maybe you still remember it. Did I put it on screen? I didn't. All right, you can write this down. Sorry. Anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Let's say it one more time. Anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, our minds, our affections more than God. And most Christians, most of us today would say, I only worship God. I don't worship idols. But who or what you worship is really what's most on your mind, what you long for, what you wish for during Black Friday shopping, what you were scrolling for, what you have your heart most set on, where you spend your time and your money. When we see external sins in our lives like anger, jealousy, worry, substance abuse, pleasure outside of marriage, lying, almost every time those sins are there on the outside for others to see, there's usually something else going on in our hearts. There's a sin beneath the sin. There's something causing us to act that way because we're not satisfied with what God has given us or we're not waiting for what God is going to provide. Something that we want to control, something that we think God just isn't giving us, but we obviously deserve it, we crave it, we'll do anything to have it. It could be something good like wanting peace and quiet when you're at home or reading your Bible or listening to a sermon podcast, and then we blow up at people who have interrupted our quiet time with God. What's the purpose of our quiet time with God? It's to grow spiritually, right? But then we turn around and say, well, I have to have that. It could be something good like singing special music and then someone else is asked instead of you and you're like, why wasn't I the one asked? Why is someone else doing this? Why am I not getting what I want? Isn't what I want right? So say all of us, don't we all think that what we want is good and that it's something we deserve and so we fight for it, we sin because of it. The things that even can be good things in and of themselves become idols when they replace God, when they replace his glory because God wants us to show his character to everyone around us. And when we're not showing his character, we are sinning. Verses 7 and 8 talk specifically about some of the idolaters who sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. He's talking about indulging in sexual immorality, as some of them did. 
and the literal worship of idols throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, it almost always involved sexual immorality. Earlier we heard uh, Paul talking about the, um, the prostitutes that were part of the temple worship in the Greek temples and in the Roman temples. They had orgies, they had parties, and they said they were celebrating and enjoying what the gods had given them. But it almost always involved sexual immorality. And so in Exodus 32, when the children of Israel created the golden calf, they literally made an idol out of their own earrings. And they said, here, make us something that we can worship. How foolish is that? It's not like someone said, here's something that has given special powers, worship it. They said, make this for us so we can worship it. God was in the clouds, in the mountaintop, speaking to Moses. They knew he was there, and yet they couldn't touch him. They couldn't see him, and so they said, we want what the people around us have. They have gods that they can touch. They have gods that they can see, and we want one of those. And so as Moses is coming down from the mountaintop, it says he heard a loud sound. He thought there was a battle going on. That's how loud their party was. Any of you have loud party neighbors and you think that there's a war going on? That's how loud the people were. They were singing, they were dancing, and apparently sexual sin was accompanying this idol worship. That's why Moses is so angry as he comes down the mountain. And what does he do with the tablets that God created? He throws them on the ground and they're broken. What was true for the Israelites was true of the culture of Corinth. Sexual sin and idolatry. Instead of the beauty of sex within marriage, they were turning it into something that was just about their own pleasure and they were sinning. It says that the Levites in, back in Exodus killed 3,000 men and then God sent a plague on the people and apparently another 20,000 died because in this passage, it tells us 23,000 died that day as a result of their worshiping the idol. So, as we talked about before, sex is something good that God created for a man and a woman committed to each other in marriage. But it's selfish when it's used outside of marriage, and it's sin. Something good becomes wrong when it's not God's design. Verse 9 is another example. It's recounting the fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21 that went around the camp biting and killing the Israelites who were questioning God's goodness. This is another thing from chapel, right? We saw that the people were being bitten and they were getting sick and then they were dying. They were questioning God's goodness. In God's plan, he provided for them food. He provided manna from heaven. He provided water for them. And they said literally, we loathe this worthless food. We're tired of what you're giving us, God. We want something else. And their prayer maybe sounded like this. Oh God, we need food, but no, not that food. We're bored with that. Give us what we want. 
we want ice cream, we want steak, we want something other than what you've provided and sustained us with. And don't we sometimes pray that way? God, give me something, and God provides something, and we say, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. I was really hoping for X, Y, or Z. God gives us good things, and we ignore them. And the uh, verse 10 refers to the rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16. The earth opened up and swallowed a number of leaders of Israel. They were priests and their families who were grumbling and complaining about Moses and Aaron's leadership. They said, you let us out here. We think we should take over. You're not doing what we want you to. And the Bible says fire shot out from their incense censers. Those of you that grew up in the Catholic Church or have been to one know what an incense censer is, right? It's the brass container that smoke comes out of, and they carry it on the chain, and fire shot out of that and destroyed a bunch of people. And then there was a following plague that killed 14,700 more. One commentator suggested that the destroyer with a capital D was potentially the same angel who went through Egypt killing the firstborn. So this was a destroying angel, and it he came through with a plague and killed 14,700 more people. Verse 11 tells us that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. These things happen as an immediate warning to the people of Israel, to the people who were complaining. Many of them died. And the people who weren't complaining said, oh, this is what happens when we're not satisfied with God. I better not do that anymore. We're not going to chase after idols. We're not going to grumble and complain. We want to not die. So we're seeing people dropping right around them. It was a warning to them. When you replace God with idols of your own making. Or when selfishness and pride tell you that God is not giving you what you really want. So go find something else. If God is not all that good, if he's just okay, he's just giving you enough, then go look for something else. And God warned them by saying, that's not the way to go. And then it says, these things were written down for our instruction. Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's talking to us. The Old Testament narratives are there to help us see what happened to people who trusted God and obeyed God and looked for the promised Messiah and what happened to people who did not trust God, who did not obey God, and tried to take matters into their own hands. Two very different sets of things happened. There were blessings for many, but then those who looked somewhere else, God brought judgment on them. And that not only was a warning to the Israelites, but it's instruction for us. Can we learn something from these bad examples? People often complain about the Bible and say, oh, it's just filled with horrible stories. Blood and guts and gore and all kinds of terrible things happening. Why, did, why is that all there? That's our world. But God provided it for us for our instruction that we would learn from it and say, let's not repeat those mistakes. Let's not turn away from God and look for something else. And let's, let's not go chasing after idols. 
And then Paul says at the very end, on whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages is, is still now. Paul was talking 2,000 years ago, and it's this time period, the church age, after the Messiah has come, after he's fulfilled all of those promises, it's for us. But in this sad passage, in all of this destruction, in all of these people chasing after the wrong things, we see there's a way of escape. And verses 12 to 22 give us four promises that we see God promises his faithfulness, and then we see what Satan does to lie to us and try to entice us. Verse 12 starts with what word in your Bible? Therefore, another thing to set up and take notice. Oh, we had all repeated over and over again. Now we have a therefore. And that means we need to look at the previous passage and say, what do we need to do now? Based on what you just heard. If you think you're doing okay, take heed. Be careful. Be cautious. Or you also will fall. Watch out for pride. Don't let this thing happen to you. Look at what happened to God's own chosen people when they walked away from him, when they disobeyed him, when they didn't trust his goodness. So verse 13 tells us very practically what to do when we are tempted. And no, you will be tempted. Living the Christian life doesn't mean that you're free from temptations. Some of your old sins will come back and they'll try to entice you back again. Or some new ones will come along. You will be tempted as a believer. The encouragements are that we can go through those temptations and there is a way of escape. So jot down these four things. Try to memorize them because they'll help you when you're facing a temptation, which is also called a trial. A trial is something difficult in your life, and the temptation is not to trust God. And then there are literal temptations, which is, here's a sin in front of you that looks so good that you just jump right in after it and, and do what God says is wrong for you, what's bad for you. So first of all, God tells us that we are not alone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, to all people. You're not the only one struggling with this sin. When we're young Christians, when we're teenagers, when we're young people especially, we think, am I the only person having this thought? Am I the only person struggling with this? And Satan's lie convincing you is that there's no one else as bad as you are. You're the one who's messed up and everyone would be so upset if they found out you're struggling with a sin. Don't destroy your parents' view of you. Don't let your friends know that you're struggling. Just stay alone in this. Don't tell anybody. And Scripture says that we have brothers and sisters in the church, that we have parents, we have people we can talk to to encourage us, to build us up, to help us through trials. Satan wants us separated and alone, believing that no one else is struggling like this. Secondly, we see the end of verse 13. God is faithful. God is faithful. Joshua 1.9 says, Be strong 
and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I just cut out some of the middle of that, but you know the verse. God is with you wherever you go. Satan wants you to feel like you're alone, like you're abandoned by God, but this is simply not true. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Don't worry, for the Lord your God is with you everywhere you go. God is faithful. Number three, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This is not more than you can handle. As a follower of Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, you can endure this. On your own, you're going to have failures because you're just going to be doing it with your own physical limitations, your own weaknesses. But with God, with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, with the Holy Spirit, you can endure this. God's grace is sufficient. It's all you need. God is most powerful at work in your life in your weakness. When you admit, I can't do this, he's looking for us to humble ourselves and realize that we can't handle this alone. And then ask God for help. And scripture says he will pour it out. Doesn't God give us good gifts like a father does? He's not going to give us things that will harm us. He's going to give us only good gifts. God will give you mercy and help you find grace when you need it most. Listen to these two verses. 2 Corinthians 12.9 But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of all my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest in me. That's the Apostle Paul speaking. And then over, over in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help and grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace is where Jesus is seated. We can go to him. We with confidently can draw near to that throne and say, help me. Father, help me. Jesus, Savior, help me. And it says we will receive mercy and grace in the time of need, just when you need it. The devil wants you to believe that whatever you're facing is just too much. Nobody can endure this. No one can handle it. Just give in and disobey God. It's inevitable. Just give in, give up. And finally, in verse four, I'm sorry, verse number four, God promises that there is a way out of this. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Notice that you may be able to endure it. Your escape is enduring it. Your escape is going through it. Scripture doesn't promise that God is going to pluck you out of every uncomfortable predicament. Everything that you're struggling with, oh, I'm just going to pull them out of there. We don't need to go through that. You're my child, I love you, and I'm just going to We talk about uh, snow shovel or snow plow parents who want to clear the road for their kids. They want nothing uncomfortable, nothing difficult in front of their kids, so let's just get all of those things out of the road so that they can merrily go down their way. Scripture says, our loving Father lets us face trials. He allows temptations in our lives because 
those trials build patience and endurance. They help us grow spiritually. And isn't that true of our lives physically as we grow up, even outside of the spiritual realm? When you fall off your bike and you never get back on it again because you don't want something bad to happen, you're never going to learn to ride a bike. There's going to be some scraped knees along the way in bike riding. Unless mom or dad are constantly holding on to the back of your seat. Imagine going through life with mom or dad continuing to hold the back of your seat. How far are you going to get? Only as far as they can go. How fast are you going to go? Only as fast as they can keep up with you. You're going to be super limited with mom or dad, plus the embarrassment of having them walk along behind you. That's when our oldest son, Joe, finally conquered the bicycle when the little girl across the street was riding and she was a year younger than him. And he's like, take those training wheels off, Dad. We're going to do this. I'm not going to be embarrassed. God does not plow the path in front of us, but he promises that we can endure it. We can endure it. He's going to give us the ability to either escape the temptation without giving in or endure the trial. And if we look back to Numbers 21, where the Israelites were being attacked by these fiery serpents, which God allowed into the camp. They were fiery because their bites were poisonous. I don't think they were literally smoking and steaming with fire, but it's possible. The Israelites finally got smart, and they went to Moses and said, pray to God to remove the serpents. Ask God to get these serpents out of the camp. Verse uh, Numbers 21, 7 and 9, listen to this. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. We've questioned God's goodness. We've questioned God's leader. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, he didn't say, I'm going to take the serpents away. He said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So God made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the serpent and live. Instead of removing the problem, instead of removing the fiery serpents, God provided an illustration of the Messiah who he had promised was coming to take away their sin. He wasn't coming to remove all of their problems. The people of Israel, when Jesus came, were expecting him to come and get rid of the Romans, get rid of these invaders, fix all of our problems. But instead, Jesus said, I'm here to establish a spiritual kingdom. I'm here to give you eternal life and salvation, which is so much better than just kicking out the Romans. Do you think God could have done that? Sure, he had done that so many times. Sent, fire, sent angels, armies, and the enemies just disappeared. But God said, you're going to endure this, and I'm going to provide a way of salvation, a way that you can get through this. For the Israelites, they had to look to this bronze serpent on a pole. And if any of you are in the medical realm, you know that that's the symbol for medicine, right? It's a 
serpent wrapped around a pole. And this is where it comes from, from the Old Testament. They were saved by their faith. They were saved because they believed, if I look at this pole, I will be healed. There's nothing they had to do in works. There's nothing they had to do in giving something. They just had to listen and believe what God said. Look to this serpent and you will be healed. And isn't it interesting that God used a serpent, which we always tie into the temptation in the garden. He used something that we see as bad and made it still something good. When faced with temptations to run after idols instead of believing God, Paul said, look to Jesus and flee idolatry. Run from the things that are pulling you away from God. So how do we escape? First of all, we look to Jesus. The people wanted to be saved, and Moses said, look to this pole, look to this symbol, God will save you this way. I know most of you are able to quote John 3.16, but do you know what comes right before John 3.16? Moses and the bronze serpent on the pole. John 3.14-17, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here it is. You can say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the following verse, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just like the Israelites were saved by looking to the serpent lifted up on a pole in faith, today we look to Jesus who was lifted up on a cross. God gave us that illustration. And whoever looks to him and believes that he is the Son of God will have eternal life. In verse 17, it says, Jesus didn't come to condemn us for our weaknesses He didn't condemn us for our struggles and our temptations, but he provides a means of salvation and a way through the temptation if we look to him. Psalm 139 says, God, search us and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. That should be our prayer. God, show me what's in my heart. Show me the things that I'm believing that are not true. Show me where I'm not trusting you. What idols are pulling me away from being fully satisfied in you? And look to Jesus. Verses 16 to 22, Paul is talking about communion and how we take part in it together. We all eat the same bread. We all drink from the cup. He's referring back to the manna and the water from the rock, making another connection. God provided food and water for the Israelites. He provides food and water for our souls. At communion, we're reminded that we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. We symbolically eat food and drink. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water that you may hunger and thirst no more. So when we come to the communion table, we're remembering that we have everything we need in Jesus. 
he warns the Corinthians then to not take part in pagan ceremonies and meals in the temples to the false gods. And Paul says, yes, the literal meat doesn't have any powers. And previously we talked about that, whether you could eat food presented to idols. But here Paul is saying, don't go and be part of that ceremony anymore. Don't go back to your old way of living because you're going to be in a place of temptation. You're going to want to take part in those things again. And you're putting yourself in a dangerous place. Literally, he says, you're eating and drinking with demons. Don't accept this pagan version of the Lord's Supper. Satan is always lying and he's always copying God. Anything that is good that God does, Satan makes a version that is twisted and evil. And so we come to the communion table and we remember Jesus and we're satisfied in him and we're not tempted to accept something other than God. Hebrews 12.2 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for our sake endured the cross. He endured the trial. He endured the temptation. He endured God turning his back on us for him. And he says, I want you to endure trials and difficulties because you too will grow spiritually from that. So look to Jesus and then flee from idols. Verse 14 is pretty straightforward. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. There's another therefore. So we have to take notice of this. And then we see, run away. The best temptation is R-U-N, run. Don't stick around. Don't see if you can handle it. Don't mess around with sin and then expect God to rescue you. R-U-N, run. The Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, and he had that instruction for him. So flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And the Apostle John makes some of those passions clear for us. The things that the world tries to substitute for the good things that God provides. 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The things that this world tempts us with are all temporary. They're going to pass away. They're not going to last. Chase after God. Be satisfied in God. The personal pride, thinking that you're better than everybody else. The physical pleasures, things that we covet and see and then think we need. We think God is keeping the good stuff away from us with all of his rules, when he says, don't do this, don't do that, God is saying, stay away from destruction. God provided this world for us to enjoy, but not to replace him. All of these temporary things will not last. Our relationship with God through Jesus Christ will last forever. So living in light of eternity is choosing the harder path 
choosing to glorify God and to experience satisfaction and peace with God now and forever, living in light of what lasts, living in light of the things that are permanent. Verse 22, God says, I'm sorry, in verse 22 it says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not stronger than he? Don't make God jealous. He desires all of our worship, and he alone is worthy because not only is he God, but that's what's best for us. When we seek after something else, when we're chasing after things that are second, third rate, that are not what God gave us and said, this is what can satisfy you, then we are making God jealous because he wants us to glorify him. And people read that and say, oh, God is an egomaniac. He just wants it all to be about him. But when it's about him, when our lives are focused on him, when we are fulfilled and satisfied in him, we have the most joy. We have the most full life. Jesus said, I came to give you life that it would be full and abundant. And that's a life chasing after God. When you're showing his glory to other people, when people see his character in you, that is when your life is at its best. And so when God says, glorify me, he's saying, be satisfied. Enjoy all of the things I gave you. Do it my way because it will be the best for you. He loves us and he doesn't want to see us mess up our lives and everyone around us by chasing worthless idols. That's a problem I didn't even talk about in here, but when we put all of these other things in front of God, it messes up our relationships, our families, our marriages, our friendships. All of those things are affected, even when we're putting those people first. If we put our kids or our spouse ahead of God, that relationship will have problems because it's not the way it's supposed to be. So a couple of takeaways this morning. In case you didn't open your bulletin yet uh, and see there's a note sheet in there, <clears throat> there's plenty of blank lines and maybe some things that jogged your thoughts this morning that you can just jot down and think about them a little bit in the week to come. Are you struggling to fix eternal, external problems instead of looking at the real problem under the surface? looking for the sin that is causing this very visible blow-up in your life. Watch the Gospel Treason series. If you weren't here for it, Jake taught us and led us through that, uh, was it two summers ago? It wasn't this summer. So, yeah, last summer. Um, if you go to our website, you can find the links for it. And you can also um, find the book and all kinds of information. So, on our uh, church website, which is dunkirkbaptist.org, under sermons. Each week is an outline of the sermon that you just heard, and then there's also video and audio of it, and sometimes I put links and things in there. So if there's something you want to follow up on and check on more, that's a place where you can go to find that. Out at the Welcome Center, there's a cabinet with all kinds of um, counseling and help-related things, 
And on there is a brochure called Identifying Idols. And if you haven't picked one of those up, it'll just help you walk through and talk through what things in your life are causing you to think that what God's giving you is not good enough. So I'd encourage you to check those out. Do you want to keep trying the world's solutions for your emptiness, for your pain, for your loss, for your hunger? You want to keep chasing after those things? Maybe you've been doing it for years and years and years and saying, one of these times it's going to work. God's word says that they're temporary, but they're also very dangerous. They don't impact your heart. They're just external things. They're just giving you brief moments of pleasure or peace, but they are not taking care of the problems that are broken inside your heart. And God cares about your heart. He says he's going to take care of all of our physical needs, but he also says, I look at the heart. While the people just look at the outside, I'm looking at your heart, and I want you to be satisfied there. Remember, while God is looking at your heart, he's also willing to reveal to you what's going on in your heart. Jeremiah said that we lie to ourselves and our hearts deceive us because we say that we're not who we really are. And so God, his Holy Spirit, are able to cut through all of that and show us here's what's going on. If you need help with that, you can check out our counseling page on our website and learn a little bit more about that too. Maybe you're doubting God's promises. Go back to those four truths about temptation and work on memorizing some of the verses that relate to that. There is nothing new. You're not being tempted with something that no one else has dealt with. God is faithful. He will never leave you. There is a way through this to endure this temptation. And... Finally, what's number four? I should have put that in my notes. That would have been helpful. There is a way out. That was it. I said it already. Sorry. (laughs) Maybe you're in a trial right now. Maybe there's a difficulty in your life where you're tempted to choose the world's quick and easy solution. God may be allowing this hard time, this painful situation, so that you can look to Jesus, so that you'll cling to God's promises, so that you'll choose to obey him, and that you will experience lasting joy and satisfaction instead of going back to the same thing over and over again and never being satisfied, never seeing that solved. So think about what's going on in your life and ask God, God, can you show me why this is happening? Show me what I need to learn from this. How can I glorify you in this situation? Losing a family member or having a struggle in your marriage or kids that aren't talking to you or losing a job or whatever it is, instead of your prayer being, God, why me? The question should be, God, what do you want to show me? What do you need to teach me through this? What can I learn from this? The Bible doesn't say that God is going to protect us from every bad thing. And some of those things come just because of the sin around us. 
Sometimes they come from our own mistakes that we've chosen the wrong thing and now we're experiencing the consequences of that. But we can still go to God and say, help me through this. Help me endure this. Help me learn from this. Help me glorify you in this. Not only are you not alone with God there, but you have a church family who loves you and cares about you. And we'd like to help you through that as, if we can as well. So if you need to talk to God about any of these things this morning, take some time right now. There's still plenty of time for coffee downstairs. You don't have to sing the, we don't have a closing song, and you don't have to grab the first cup of coffee. You could get the last cup of coffee. You can stay right where you are in your seat. We're not going to have a closing song because Mark's not here this morning. But take some time in prayer, even either where you are or if you want to come up front into one of these empty spots. If you see someone else praying and you're in a rush, let them spend some time talking to God. Don't disturb them. Maybe you could sit down and pray for them as you're next to them. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the examples from the Old Testament of people who struggled with thinking you weren't giving them the best. Lord, we struggle with that so often ourselves that we want just a little bit more. We want things to go just a little bit better. And even though we may not say it out loud, we think that you're holding out on us, that you're not giving us all the good things that we need, all the things we deserve. Help us to run from idols, to run from things that are worthless, that are things that are not good for us. Help us to run and look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to look to you to be satisfied in all the things you've provided for us, to count our blessings as we've done this week, to see all the things that you've done, to remember them, and then to ask you to help us see what we need to learn from whatever trial, whatever temptation we're facing, to draw closer to you, to be satisfied in you, to flee from the things that are just temporary, the things that are against your will, the things that you call sin. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory through his Son, Jesus Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.